Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. This is where I bought my first bag of heroin. It was 1980. I was 24 years old. But in a lot of ways, my whole life up to that point was leading to this address. Western Massachusetts, the unlikely new frontier of America's war on drugs, where heroin has become an exploding problem that's begun to touch nearly every family. like the North Atlantic. It's majestic. I love the beach. Pretty much had my first everything on a beach. You name it, first time I did it, beach. I was uh, miserable in love, happy in love, alternately, as only a 17-year-old could be. This is where I lived, a very happy summer in the early 70s, and uh, that was my room on the left. It's an amazing spot if you think about it. A bunch of knuckleheads working as dishwashers and waiters and pizza servers. You know, we could live on a beach like this. You know, happier, stupider times. You know, I can still hear the playlist. Strawberry Letter and the Brothers Johnson. If you put on Marvin Gaye right now, I'd burst into tears. What do you do? You're young, you go to the beach, you know, you get laid and you, you get high. It was here, all the way out at the tip of Cape Cod, Provincetown, Massachusetts, where the Pilgrims first landed. And it was where I first landed. 1972, washed in a town with a head full of orange sunshine and a few friends. Provincetown, a wonderland of tolerance, longtime tradition of accepting artists, writers, the badly behaved, the gay, the different. It was paradise. 
the joy that can only come with an absolute certainty that you're invincible, that none of the choices that you make will have any repercussions or any effect on your later life, because we didn't think about it, those things. I don't even know what I thought I was going to be. At that point, I certainly didn't think I was going to be a cook. I don't know what I thought I was going to be. I was just, you know, hanging out in a beautiful place. A golden time. I look back on those fuzzy memories, and they seem golden anyway. Oh, there's John Waters. First love, and there's me. This guy, Johnny Yingling, was sort of a central figure in all of our lives. Well, my name is John Yingling, and uh, this is Spiritus Pizza. It's been here since 1971. This town is everything to me. Provincetown is a really special place where people can be themselves. We all did drugs, acted young and crazy, and Tony was, um, he was probably a little wilder in some and not as wild as others. But he was always the guy who I always liked. And you let me sleep on top of the walk-in. Right, I actually remember that. Spiritus. I cannot tell you how frequently I dream about Spiritus Pizza. I'm walking down Commercial Street, and I'm sort of dimly aware that Spiritus has moved, and there's a sense of dislocation and a loss as I stumble around this sort of Provincetown dreamscape of 40 years ago. <laughs> well, we're still here and living in hope. <laughs> Unbelievable. Many of the old places in P-Town are gone but the lobster pot is still going strong all these years later and still has what I want and need, the essentials. My friends worked in the kitchen here, starting the tradition among my set that cooking work was noble toil. At that point, I never intended a career as a chef. It was great to be a cook. I, I was getting to that. <laughs> oh, oh, yes. So this is a homemade Portuguese kale soup made on the premises. It's been a long time. Thank you. Enjoy. Portuguese soup, a P-Town version of the Azorean caldo verde, and just what I remembered. Kale, fiery red chorizo, linguiça, kidney beans, potatoes. Oh, I missed you. No, I missed you bad. Mm. And that was precisely what I loved about the food here, the Portuguese thing. Dishes like this stuffed cod crusted with ground Portuguese sausage, breadcrumbs, stuffed with scallop and crab, some sherry, red sauce. I hadn't been working for a while. I was a deadbeat. I mean, I'm just, you know, scarfing off everybody else. And Nancy Poole comes home from work and says, uh, our dishwasher didn't show up today. You're our new dishwasher. I said, oh, really? And the next day, I put on the apron, and I didn't take it off for 30 years. I'd wake up, and all of us go to the beach, hang out on the beach till, like, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock. Yeah, it was fun. Roll into work, work all night, drinking, getting high, drilling out food. You got all the food you wanted, all the liquor you wanted. All the sex you wanted. All the sex you wanted. And it's true. It was fun. We had a great and, time. And yet you were still an essential part of the economy. It was a lot of fun, believe me, I remember. The flagship. It's where my cooking career started, where I started washing dishes, where I started having pretensions of culinary grandeur. That would seem like a good gig for anybody. Who else got to live like that during that time? You had to sort of be in a band. Here we were, we, you know, we were dishwashers. Now you get a little older and you get a little more sense and you realize that like, you know, you gotta like pace yourself a little bit. <laughs> Otherwise we still wouldn't be here. Well, you know, many of our friends from those days yeah, didn't many make my, it. Many of my friends are dead, yeah. All right. As you were. Keep drinking, keep drinking. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Tony.
This place has been here forever. That used to be the back room. Back room's still there. See, it's all falling into place again. Yeah, it's not that much different. It's early spring now, but come Memorial Day, it gets crazy around here and doesn't stop till Labor Day. Provincetown was always gay-friendly, in my time and way, way before my time. And this place, the Atlantic House, known always and forever by locals and visitors alike as the A-House, is America's oldest operating gay bar. Everybody has come through these doors, so to speak. Most notably, a naked and frolicking Tennessee Williams. Is the floor still shake, or did they fix no. it? No. Oh, that's really too it, bad. Everybody got seasick and started tripping. Now that it's even, they all say, let me have a cocktail so I can get my sea legs back. Oh, really? <laughs> April Cabral owns the joint now, taken over for her father, the legendary Reggie Cabral, a forward-thinking dude, if there ever was one. It was built in 1798. How long in the family? In your family? Over 75 years. My father, during that time, he had Billie Holiday appeared, he had Nina Simone, Ella Fitzgerald, all the big names of jazz. How has town changed? Has it changed? Oh, I think tremendously. Gay lifestyle is much more accepted. Look, in 1972, my feeling was that this was a gay town and that I was here at the pleasure of you know, somebody else, which is sort of the opposite of everywhere outside of here at that time. Oh, yes. This was a largely Catholic, oh, yeah. Portuguese, uh, conservative fishing community. But it was also known as Helltown. It was Helltown. That's where the Puritans sent their rejects. <laughs> right out here. Right. Farther, yeah. farther out on the not, hook. That's not kidding. Provincetown, yeah. I think, always had the mixture, really, of the bohemian people and the fishermen, the pirates, the writers, the drunks, all that. Anyone who had a lifestyle outside the mainstream was, was welcome here pretty much. Whatever floats your boat, you know? It's all good. Oh, how I wish we could both go back to that summer. Over a century ago, Provincetown was a hard-working fishing village with multi-generational families of fishermen. My name's uh, Bo Gribben. My father fished, and uh, I was pretty much raised here my whole life, where I'm from. That's who I am. But it used to be like two out of three families in this town, this community, were fishing families. Most of them are now gone, and we're really like a minority. It used to be a fishing community with a homosexual problem. Now it's a homosexual community with a fishing problem. The first Portuguese fishermen arrived here in 1840. The main families created a community built around fishing, and this town lived off that industry well into the 20th century. It persisted even when I was here, keeping up old Catholic fishing traditions like the blessing of the fleet. These days, however, there are fewer and fewer boats to bless. My name's Scott Rowe. I'm a commercial fisherman. Sea scallops, fourth generation. Oh, I started when I was five. It was cool back then. There was like 70 or 80 boats here. They were five or six deep. Now it's just down to like seven or eight. No, I'm wicked proud of my heritage and um, I would never do anything else. This is my office, man, look at it. I'm gonna do this until I can't move anymore. 
We roll into town like clockwork, 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning. It's quiet. The town's been ripped up all night long. We come down here, hit the water. What could be better? Well, good time to be here, be here and uh, nice weather today. Yeah, pretty yeah. nice day. Doing good. It's a little breezy. It might be a little nautical. It's all right. <laughs> a little bit. That's, I'm sure I'll be fine. I've watched The Deadliest Catch, so I'm... <laughs> so you ready? I'm ready. Time to press the fun button. <laughs> Clear. All clear. Used to be that this was the best thing in the world. We were like, the greatest thing about fishing was you were kind of like a cowboy, like a pioneer. You could go out and as hard as you could push, competition was welcome. We were fiercely independent. That independence is like little by little by little taken away. Is there a limited number of stuff out there? Well, there's a total allowable catch. We're on a 600-pound trip limit right now. And the payout ain't much. Do the math. A good day of scalloping brings in, say, 9,000 bucks. From that 9,000, take away 3,000 for the lease, 1,000 for fuel, and split the remainder amongst the crew. And on top of that, fishing's really just a crapshoot. Many days, there's simply nothing to catch. So why the f are you doing this? Well, it's still what we love to do. Like for us, we say it all turns to shit when we come back around the breakwater. Like once we get out to there, we feel like we're at home. Like I said, it ain't easy. Today, according to Bo, Scott, and Zeb, this was just a little breeze. How rough does it have to be when you look out and say, uh, I'm not going out today? Uh, it starts like blowing like 30, 35. We like days like this because the competition stays in. Really? <laughs> Pussies. My dad used to say, when you're dry, you're not making any money. We're fishing. So it's not going to snap until flying back up. your head off. Not too often, no. Yeah, I hate when that happens. Yeah, it's a bummer. In the summer, you'll be able to smell the coconut. Another big trick we have, because now the guys decided they like this part of the beach, right? So they, they're all out here nude sunbathing. So I pick up my glasses and I tell them, wow, look at the breasts on that girl. And you give it to them and they see something they weren't expecting to see. It works every time, though. Can't believe he didn't cook nothing. I can't believe it, man. Look, got Anthony Bourdain on deck. We don't even have nothing to eat. The best part of it, the anticipation to see what's in there. So every toe, I'm like, I just can't wait. You're like, look, and you're like, what's going to be in there? What's going to be in there? Sometimes it's a disappointment, but a lot of times <laughs> it's a disappointment. <laughs> How many did we get? Got a few. Is there? All right, we're out. That's why it's fishing and not catching. Yeah. They'll taste all that much better. This 
place was and been here forever when, when I rolled into town. How long has this place been open? For our time. I think this is the only place in town that's unchanged. These are paintings of customers? Yeah. How long do I have to drink here to get my, my face up there? 40 years? Couple more years. Yeah, at least. Back when I worked in town for fishermen, there was the forecastle, Cookie's Tap Room, and this place, the Old Colony. Of the three, it's the only one left. Yeah, baby. Oh, wait a minute, I recognize these. Yeah, you guys eat so Yeah. As brawny, hardworking men of the sea, we deserve these beers, these finest of all oysters, the Wellfleets. Wow. The finest sure. oysters oh known God. to man? Yes. How are you, man? These are fantastic. Wow, what a treat. Is there going to be a next generation of uh, fishermen in the family? What happens after you guys? It's going to die. The next generation of fishermen that are like coming onto our boats, they're, opp they're opportunists for the income. It's not for the love of being on the water. This is the end. The fishery is going to die. Cheers. All right. Thank you, guys. Uh, cheers. <laughs> this is going to end badly. Ah, say. Cheers. Cheers to you. It's a nice house. I mean, it just feels like I never left in a lot of ways, but of course, it's 40 years later almost. And that was the uh, Sodom and Gomorrah by the sea over there. You know, a big candy store for a horny, stupid 17-year-old with a taste for chemicals. You know, I was an angry young man. What the hell was I so angry about? It, it came as a rude surprise to me when I turned 30, because I'd always sort of figured I'd be dead by then. I was still quite some time away from my first bag of heroin, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of ways it was a foregone conclusion. My whole life was sort of leading up to that point, to, the, to, the, to my first bag of dope. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline.
I left Provincetown with restaurant experience, a suntan, and an ever-deepening relationship with recreational drugs. I went to culinary school, then to New York City, and never returned. Today, however, I'm staying in Massachusetts, heading over to the western part of the state, one of the most beautiful areas of the country, the gorgeous mill towns, Victorian houses, deeply felt, famously upright New England values, Norman Rockwell America, where something really inexplicable and unexpected has happened. Bucolic, New England, is a new mecca for heroin use. Emergency room admissions, overdose deaths. We have rural law enforcement areas dealing with crimes being committed that never happened before. Detectives are working around the clock. Dealers are making a killing. Not New York or Baltimore or L.A. or Chicago, but rural towns like this one are now statistically ground zero for the heroin epidemic. What the hell happened? The next couple of years, if this heroin use trend continues to grow, it may be beyond getting a handle on it. I'm a detective with the Greenfield Police Department, and my focus is uh, undercover in narcotic investigations. This is a well-known area to us, uh, very active. Heroin use, past year, it's just increased to a level I've never seen any other drug come into an area. People that are in it are all going to be affected. It hasn't topped out yet. Someone you've known, someone you went to school with, someone you work with. So, um, Sonny Crockett gets a Ferrari. Uh, what's wrong with this picture? <laughs> Tried the Lexus, but they said no way. So I got this one. Well, it's being reported in the national papers. There's been an explosion of uh, heroin use, heroin-related crimes overdoses. Now, how's that happen? I think once this area realized that we had a heroin problem, we were already behind it, trying to play catch-up. We are on the 91 corridor. Route 91 has been dubbed the heroin highway at this point. It's a widely used road to go north and south. There's opportunists here, and for low money input, they're getting a high profit. That's the typical heroin packaging. It'll be bundles of 10. It'll be 50 bags here. So 60 to 80 bucks for 10. You can charge whatever they want. It's all supply and demand. That's one dose per for most people. They'll do multiple bags, anywhere from three to five bags at right. a time, uh, up to 30 bags a day. And the, the current economics of the, the town, uh, I am the only one assigned to the narcotics position. How many heroin addicts do you think are, are walking the streets of Greenfield right now? I'm gonna say that we're in the high hundreds. Wow. We're in the high hundreds. High hundreds. Yeah. It's hitting every age group, economic household, it's out there. It, so we don't have Crips and Bloods taking over motel rooms. The person selling you dope, more likely to be familiar than a stranger. I'm gonna meet a past distributor I've known for several years. We meet Carmen, as we'll call her, a powerful local heroin dealer turned paid confidential police informant out in the woods. How'd you get into the business initially? I needed the money. I needed to support my family. Couldn't get a job. How easy was it to get into the dope business? Not hard at all, because it's cheap. Mm -hmm. Was there money in it? Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, oh yeah. It's like Mayberry out here from looking around. I mean, who's using heroin now? I mean, what were kids? Kids. Today's heroin epidemic is different than the one that raged through America in the 1970s. 
in a few significant ways. Back then, heroin was mostly seen as a poor people problem, somebody else's problem, the sort of thing that musicians and criminals got into, marginal people far from the white main streets of Mayberry, USA. What those people did to themselves, well, it was unfortunate, but not our problem until somebody broke into your house. Today, it's absolutely the reverse. The new addicts are almost entirely white, middle class, and from towns and areas like this. How do you think you make it better? You don't. Whoa, you don't? No. There's going to be more robberies. There's going to be more killings. Take one person off the street here, two more come in. At the peak, how many, how how many, many customers, customers did you have? Probably Olive Greenfield. What happened? How did the kid next door, along with mom, pop, and grandma too, become users of hardcore illegal narcotic drugs? The worst drug with the worst reputation? Well, maybe start here. Once you've found the right doctor and have told him or her about your pain, don't be afraid to take what they give you. Often, it will be an opioid medication. Here's a 1996 promotional video from the fine folks at Purdue Pharmaceuticals. Sent around to doctors, it encouraged them to prescribe the latest, newest, most wonderful drug for long-term pain management, OxyContin. Some patients may be afraid of taking opioids because they're perceived as too strong or addictive. But that is far from actual fact. Less than 1% of patients taking opioids actually become addicted. Sales of OxyContin, initially and falsely proclaimed as not addictive, absolutely skyrocketed from $45 million in 1996 to $3.1 billion in 2010. That same year, Purdue tweaked the way they were making Oxy in an attempt to, they said, limit its addictive qualities. Finally, the government and law enforcement took a harsh look at the drug, and it became much harder to get legally, which sucked for the thousands and thousands who by now had a serious habit. I'm Ruth Potee. I'm a family physician in Greenfield, Massachusetts, and I grew up here. My dad was actually a small-town doctor out here. I'm a total generalist, but for the last four or four and a half years, a larger part of my practice has been focused on addiction to opiates. You know, I got put on pain medication. Then when they started disappearing, everybody else was doing it. The heroin? Yeah. I can get a bag of heroin easier than I can get a joint. And once they start, they just slip down that rabbit hole and, um, you know, maybe they make it out. That's our goal is to get them out and to live healthy again. We've really, in our own way, created this mess that we're in now. In downtown Greenfield, the People's Pint, an eco-conscious, locavorian pub that brews its own beer, uses only farm-fresh ingredients, and composts its leftovers. It's where I meet up with Dr. Poti for dinner. I guess my first question is... Who's doing dope? Everybody starts with pills. There's nobody who Everybody. Goes, everybody starts with pills. There's nobody who goes from marijuana to heroin. There's an in-between step. Always pills. It's pills that people get from their doctor. From me, particularly the young people, had an injury, a sports-related injury, had their wisdom teeth out, and they felt awesome on the drug. And they were like, how can I get more of that? After three to six months of looking for more to that, they couldn't find it, and then they jumped. Is it the, is it Big Pharma's fault? Is it doctor's fault? Is it every who's 
Who made a mistake here? So I think it's complicated. I'm not going to say there's one one entity here that's responsible, but there was a lot of money to be made by promoting the treatment of pain to the highest level. And Big Pharma made a lot of money on this. And I was taught in residency, you give people as much pain medicine as they need, you get them out of pain, we will judge your hospital, we will judge your emergency room based on your pain scores. That's how we were taught. And we were also told these medicines aren't really all that addictive. We started handing out pills like crazy. 100 million Americans have chronic pain. So we did a disservice as doctors and as prescribers. Like, we took data that was bullshit, right? And then we went forth with it and said, oh, prescribe it to everyone. They won't get addicted. We know what we're doing. Guess what? We didn't know what we were doing. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max. A few miles down the road from Greenfield is Shelburne Falls. The good old days that everybody used to talk about back when I was a kid. Sundays, church and picnics. Saturday nights, Sox games, beer, and bowling. The Shelburne Falls bowling alley is where time seems anyway to have stopped. First opened in 1906, this is the second oldest bowling alley in America dedicated to old-school New England-style candlepin bowling. The Holy Rollers, a crowd of septuagenarians who grew up in Shelburne and plan, and this is a reasonable expectation, to kick my ass. They've been playing here since the 50s. I was never allowed to come near the bowling alley. Really? This is a den of iniquity? Oh, this was my aunt did not think this was a good idea. Man, it's a tiny little ball. This looks really hard. All right. different Shelburne Falls. I grew up here. Right. Very different. People don't know each other as well as everyone used to know each other. When I grew up in Greenfield, everybody had jobs. I worked from the time I was 13. If I had to go back there uh, now, mm -hmm. I don't believe in drugs. I don't have anything to do with them. But what choice would I have? Standing on the corner, I probably would get into a business. What's a good business? Well-paying business. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. I mean, that's, that's where we are. Yes, it used to be a very different world, towns like this one. And there were many. But like everywhere else, it seems the mills, the factories closed down. And with them, a certain kind of social contract with the people who worked there. Uh, my name is uh, Ed Gregory, originally from Turner's Falls. Born and brought up here, born in 1945. My father was an employee of the Strathmore Mill, as was my grandfather. During the heyday, there were three paper mills, a cotton mill, a silk mill, a foundry. It was just a beehive of activity here. Back then, a company town like this, the company actually took care of you. They built and provided homes for their employees, schools, 
The river provided energy. The company provided nearly everything else. The heyday is gone. People are definitely struggling to find work. The town just kind of died during the 80s. When the folks came to work, they were immigrants. Attracted by the manufacturing here. Correct. You know, made it a possibility of owning a home in a, in a, in a real decent part of, the, part of the county here. So my, my father was here, uh, the millwright. Uh, a millwright's job is a jack of all trades, if you will. If there was something that needed to be repaired. So you could work in a mill, live in a nice home, send your kids to school, make a living, all on a mill salary. You bet. It's unthinkable now, almost. What happened to the, the business? Things are going to other countries, but not coming back to the United States. This time it came redundant. Uh, correct. Again and again, all over the country, I keep running into situations like this, where industry has died or fled or simply relocated. I meet people like Charles Garville, hometown heroes who, for some reason, though they could probably go anywhere, take their skills and return to where they grew up. Shady Glen Diner, today's special, a tribute to the old European immigrant culture of the area, the New England Boiled Dinner. So I hear rumors of uh, corned beef and cabbage, is that right? Yeah, we do. Uh, every week we do a corned beef and cabbage dinner. Slowly cooked corned beef, boiled potatoes, steamed cabbage. Wow, that's a beast. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. How long have you been here? Two years. Were you from this area? Yeah, I grew up here and I've been coming here since a kid and went through a few owners and then it came up for sale and decided to give it a shot. Generally speaking, who are your customers? Most of them, they're uh, retirees. They've been coming here since they were 30. And this you don't see so much anymore. Dino-era homemade pies, and lots of them, all baked on premises. Raspberry cream pie for me, thank you. This is not something that we see a lot of. Old school pie like that, and this number of them? Yeah, everything is made here. And they're all the original recipes from the 60s, so. Oh, yeah. yeah. The index cards are so old, they're all faded yellow. This is exotic for me. <laughs> really? Oh, yeah. Well, how's business? It's getting better. The drug problem has it has started to really get rampant. It took over May 1st, 2012, and by the end of that year, I was broken into four times. It wasn't just me that was broken into. It was multiple businesses time after time. I came in one morning to open up, and I actually had a, a guy in front of the register, and he uh, got up and pulled the knife out. I realized it really wasn't worth anything over a knife, so. I think what you're doing here is terrific. I mean, you know, our man can go and get a good hot open turkey sandwich and a good slice of pie. It's a beautiful thing. <laughs>
My son was four and my daughter was six weeks when they were taken away. I lost my kids for 33 days shy of two years. I became serious about my recovery. So is this the bad part of town, or is this just <laughs> a place where you're, you're unlikely to be people just, to f find you? Just a place where people are unlikely to find you. I wouldn't necessarily say there was a bad part of Greenfield. Uh -huh. I mean, it's probably pretty spread out bad, I guess you'd say. So what would you do? You, would you come here to chew up? Yep. You know, we'd go down here and just hang out down there. I bet if we walked along here, we'd probably find needles and bags and, you know. So basically you'd cop, come down here, shoot up, and then where are you, you going to nod out? Just, just sit down and... Just sit down and hang out, or if it's a day like this, probably just hang out under the underpass over there. Not exactly La Vida Loca. No. As you can see, all the trash and yuck, it's dirty and gross and... There's probably people who live down here. Really? Yeah. There's a lot of homeless people in Greenfield. What do you think now, like, when you see somebody like, who's clearly junk sick on the street? You know, it gives me that yuck, sick feeling. And it scares me. Like, it, it reminds me why I don't want to be out there. It's just scary. A friend of mine overdosed January 1st of this year. And my brother-in-law overdosed in Wendy's bathroom, and they found him. And they brought him back to life. He was dead in the bathroom. Mm -hmm. So this is my Narcan. I carry this around. I have one of these in my house, and I have one of these in my car. I have a fear that my husband's going to relapse, and I'm going to find him dead. You just put this in here and squirt it up their nose. Now, in most cases, as I understand it, they're right out of it. I mean, yeah, they're right out of it, and they're instantly sick. They don't wake up happy, but they wake up. But they wake up. Hey, okay, you're in a piece of you walk to the bathroom, and, and there's somebody on the blue floor. there. Are you you yep. saving that life? Yep, I'm saving that life. Absolutely. And then kicking their ass. <laughs> <laughs> better now? Life better now? Absolutely. My kids have been home three years. You know, I no longer have to watch my back. You know, I live a pretty straight and narrow life, which, you know, people might say is boring, but I love my life today. I'm grateful. Where are we headed? This way. Okay. To the Recover Project. This is where my recovery started. Started nearly a decade ago on one of the two main streets of Greenfield, the Recover Project is community-based an open-arms program aimed at helping addicts stay clean. Given the, op the opiate heroin epidemic in our community, we'd like to start the conversation just kind of sharing with one another, you know, what happened at that point of our life, what that was like. So as a child growing up in a home in addiction, I didn't understand how they could do all the stuff that they did to me and my brother and sister. Like, don't you love me enough? Then I became a mother, and then I became a heroin addict. And I did all that stuff to my kids. My doctor was my biggest drug dealer. I fell down a flight of stairs. I'd just been married, had a baby, was working two jobs, college, on top of it. Next thing you know, I'm on these prescriptions. That's where it all began for me. What are the odds that you're going to own a house? What's the odds that you're going to have a nice car? What's yeah, any car, a place to live, all that stuff? Seems less and less likely all the time. Contrast that with what happens when you stick a spike in your arm 
and why wouldn't it? So I have this picture in my head of when I got the phone call that my daughter's father had been in the accident and I had just had a C-section and they come in with this needle to give me Ativan, I think, and all I really needed was a hug. Like, I just needed someone to come up to me and give me a hug and say, I care about you, Caitlin, and everything's going to be okay. I'll tell you something really shameful about myself. The first time I shot up, I looked at myself in the mirror with a big grin. You know, something was missing in me, whether it was a self-image situation, whether it was a character flaw. You know, I came from a you know, stable family, the suburbs, you know, I had a lot of advantages. There was some dark genie inside me that I very much hesitate to call a disease uh, that led me to dope. You know, I didn't have anyone else who could have talked me out of what I was doing. Uh, an intervention wouldn't have worked. I didn't have uh, a child. Uh, I have a seven-year-old daughter now who I never would have had. I never would have thought. I looked in a mirror and I, I saw somebody worth saving um, or that I wanted to at least try real hard and save. You know, anybody could find themselves very easily in, in this situation. And, you know, I look back on that and I think about, you know, I think about what I'll tell my daughter, you know. You know, that was daddy. Ain't no doubt about it. But I hope that I'll be able to say that was daddy then, this is daddy now. That I'm alive and living in hope. Nice. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Massachusetts, the clam bake is a ritual going back to the Flintstones, before the Pilgrims. Today at the long-standing locals-only shooting club Schutzenveren, as it's called in German, for the immigrants who first started this rustic fraternity back in 1912. Club leader Ray Zerkowski takes me through the fascinating and arcane process of creating an old-school clam bake. Basically, we build a kiln with a hard wooden stone. We burn it down remove the wood, we cover it with seaweed and the corn husk, and we put our clams and lobsters and corn in there, like a pressure cooker right now. We've got a pig hiding in there also. No, no, no. We're gonna pull a tester out right now, and you can kind of see what we got here. Let's eat. All right. <laughs> First, some good chowder, and there really is only one kind of chowder, New England clam chowder. Beautiful. Mm. That's good. Steamer clams, <laughs> lobster, corn, potatoes. That's a pretty luxurious uh, clam bake here, don't hear it. That was amazing. Absolutely. Everybody's attention for a second. The Opioid Education and Awareness Task Force came together several months ago. I don't think we realized uh, how quickly uh, this could turn into a crisis for us. Everybody in this room has been touched by or impacted by narcotics in some way. The Franklin County Opioid Safety Task Force is a grassroots response. Doctors, law enforcement, led by Franklin County Sheriff Chris Donnellan, addiction specialists and addicts themselves, are coming together to find a community-based solution to what is finally being recognized as a public health crisis rather than simply a criminal justice problem. It's a great opportunity to come here tonight to break bread 
and look at the successes that we have had so far. I think what makes me more proud than anything else about living in Franklin County is that we will not sit back and wait for anybody else to solve this problem for us. We're going to be a model for the Commonwealth and for the nation on how we save our young people and how we save our community. You know, again, it's a change. The cities were the place where all of the bad stuff was supposed to happen. It wasn't supposed to be nice towns like Greenfield, right? It, it, it isn't the image that people used to have 20 years ago, that it's, it's a, a junkie in, a, in, a, in an alley somewhere using a needle. It's not. It's, it's your kids, it's your neighbors. The worst, I think, is when you have these young, young people who break a leg and they go to the doctor and they get a prescription for Oxy and become addicted to it. These are any kid who plays a high school sport. It's a, it's a horrible circumstance when that happens. It, it's only started in the past couple years. Yeah, the heroin was around, pills were around, but we didn't have people dying. Once you've been busted for heroin, that's a hard thing to, to live down. You gotta get rid of that shame factor so that people can deal with it, address it, and get support from the community. I feel like we're gonna lose a whole generation of, of, of our young people. 18 to 22 is what we're seeing the most. The district attorney, the sheriff, myself, the police department are all united. This task force has grown to over 100 people in a matter of six months, and that's what we're committed to doing. And, and you know, we will do it till the day I die. I've lost one daughter to drugs. Um, and, you know, whatever it takes. Let's start by being honest with ourselves. As a nation, for decades, we were perfectly happy to write off whole neighborhoods, whole cities, whole generations of young men and women. As long as it was an inner city problem, an urban problem, which is to say, a black people problem, a brown people problem. Send them to prison, into a system from which they'll never return. Maybe now, now that it's really come home to roost, now that it's the high school quarterback, your next door neighbor, your son, your daughter, now that grandma's as likely to be a junkie as anybody else, will accept that there has never been a real war on drugs. War on drugs implies an us versus them. And all over this part of America, people are learning there is no them. There is only us. And we're going to have to figure this out together. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.